You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, I just hopped off a podcast with Triram, the founder of Eigenlayer. As a summation, I haven't learned more in 90 minutes during this episode than I have in a very long time. He's a gigabrain. He's published dozens of academic papers, ranging from peer-to-peer networking and proof-of-stake on Bitcoin to determining data availability and optimal bootstrapping for proof-of-work blockchains. He's unique in that he's an academic, but he also has a deep understanding for the ethos and community aspects of crypto. In this episode, we start with his background and dive into Eigenlayer. We discuss the fundamental limitations of writing data to the Ethereum blockchain and how Eigen's data availability layer can solve these problems for L2s. L2s solve throughput, but Eigenlayer solves the issue of these L2s posting data from a cost and congestion standpoint back to Ethereum. More long-term, Eigen can also allow E3 stakers to bootstrap a decentralized sequencer set instead of these L2s bootstrapping their own nodes in what would seem like a semi-L1 fashion. Later, we discuss Eigen's restaking layer, where the ability for any dApp or use case to convince Ethereum stakers to restake the ETH they already have to earn more yield while opening themselves up to additional slashing conditions. We make a comparison to Cosmos's shared security model and why Shriram thinks Eigenlayers is more practical longer term. I learned a ton during this episode, and I hope you do too. If you like it, please share your favorite parts on Twitter and tag us. We really want to hear from you. Let's dive into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tommy, and today I'm thrilled to have on Sriram, who's the founder of Eigenlayer. How's it going? Very good. Thank you so much, Tommy. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this chat. Yeah. No, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So give us a brief overview about yourself. I I don't talk to too many academics turned crypto founders. I feel like sometimes you guys get a bad rap, but uh, obviously not in this case. (laughs) Uh, My background is uh, I've been... um, working on crypto and blockchain over the last five and a half years. Uh, mostly, most of this time I've been at the University of Washington, Seattle, where I run the UW Blockchain Research Lab. My interest in peer-to-peer systems dates back to my PhD times, where I worked on peer-to-peer wireless systems. Uh, this was, you know, master's and PhD between 2006 and 11. Yeah, so uh, over the last two years, I've been working on the uh, Eigenlayer project. And uh, the core idea that we're exploring there is how do we uh, enable any innovator to come and build on top of a common infrastructure. So, and the reason we got into this is based on, you know, what you asked about being a professor. And, you know, uh, there is this uh, meme uh, in blockchain about this thing called a professor coin. When we got into the space, we didn't really know any of that. But as, as I look deeper, I think there is a kind of foundational reason for why there were professor coins. Professors are more, most likely to work on new infrastructure projects. And there was no, no way to start a new infrastructure project without having to have, like, build your own uh, coin or token or whatever. And the interesting thing is, uh, uh, till now, there is actually, like, no no such possibility. And I think that's the main thing that we are trying to solve for is... How do you build new infrastructure projects without having to worry about having your own token or something on day one? And of course, the reason that like processor coins got a bad rep, like this, of course, there's a lot of tokens. And like one of the things is they they probably didn't focus on community. They focused much more just on technology. And crypto is 90% community and 10% technology. Shram, I'm so. glad you bring that up. I mean, it's actually kind of funny because like by definition, you guys are some of the smartest people in the room, right? But I think what I've seen over the years is 
whenever I talk to, you know, professors or, you know, self-titled academics in the sense, like extremely smart people, but it always seems like there's a gap between the academic world and understanding the crypto world, right? It's like, oh, the token's an afterthought or the community's an afterthought or, you know, incentives, you know, are, are cookie cutter. It always seems like they're one step away from the community. But obviously with what you've built and, you know, your personality, it doesn't seem like that's the case with with your approach. Or maybe I'm overfitting here. <laughs> Let me know what you think. <laughs> No, it's actually, I think there is uh, a lot of truth to it. Like I, I said, I've been working on blockchain for five and a half years. And I think the models and everything that we were working with till maybe a year and a half when I got into actually like the crypto streets and uh, is, is are actually very different. So uh, I think the, you know, this is one of the areas where, you know, unless you are deep in into the real system and understand real incentives and how people act and what is actually going on, even things like security models for blockchains, I think there is a huge difference between the theoretical models and the practical world. And uh, I feel fortunate to have actually kind of like figured out the subset at least that uh, that we need. And that was not the case for three and a half years that I've been working on blockchain. So you are absolutely uh, you know, spot on in that assessment. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, I mean, having the knowledge and, and the expertise of the college too, like you guys have superpowers now. I mean, w- walk me through a bit of that journey though. I mean, so you're, you're doing heavy academic work, papers, your professor, how did you get sold on crypto? Like, I mean, yes. on one side, yes. you need the open mind. On the other side, you need to have the ideas. It's, it's tough. Yeah. So that's a fascinating question and uh, kind of quite uh, relevant to what's going on right now. So the story is basically my, my PhD was in peer-to-peer uh, wireless systems. And we did a lot of mathematical modeling and analysis of how to build peer-to-peer systems with high throughput, low latency, uh, and, and so on. And, you know, at that time, you know, our expectation was like, you know, a lot of wireless would be peer-to-peer and clearly today none of wireless or pretty much none of wireless is peer-to-peer. It's all like infrastructure mediated. And so uh, when I moved from my, uh, when I finished my PhD, I was looking at what else to work on and I got fascinated by computational genomics and what was going on in synthetic biology. So I uh I did my postdoctoral work at Berkeley and Stanford and my faculty position here at the University of Washington. I was actually not uh, working on anything related to peer-to-peer. I moved on to like how to do genomics uh, analysis u- using AI, machine learning processes. And uh, w- working, I- I've been working on that for like several years, like eight years or something. And uh, uh, around 2018, January or 2017, uh, November actually, uh, my PhD advisor called me and he's like, uh, hey, Sri Ram, do you know what's going on with this Bitcoin thing? Uh, there are only like two fundamental problems there, which is throughput and latency. And we, do you want to come study this with me or do research on this with me as a collaborator? And I I was fascinated technically by that. You know, the, the weird thing is even though we worked on all this stuff between uh, the peer-to-peer wireless stuff between 2006 and 11, I hadn't quite gotten exposed. Of course, I knew of Bitcoin, but I hadn't gotten exposed to the the culture and the deeper ramifications of uh, blockchains at that time. And when, uh, when my professor brought this back and I started looking at it and 
I really didn't want to waste another five years like I thought I wasted on my PhD, which is building peer-to-peer -peer wireless systems that didn't go anywhere. So I was thinking about what, uh, whether there is like something real here or this is a kind of like a speculative mania, which was the consensus academic view at that time. I think even now, uh, most of my colleagues think I'm off the rocker for <laughs> going working on crypto <laughs> rather than on genomics. You have new friends uh, now, though. It's okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, all of you here, I am like really delighted to uh, about that. And I'll I'll talk a little bit about the culture of academics and the culture of crypto and why I found like a massive resonance here. But the 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 overall idea that I was fascinated by is you know. Uh, crypto, you know, before I got convinced, is the idea that it can be uh, just like the internet was the information superhighway. Crypto can be our cooperation superhighway because the, always the uh, friction to cooperation is trust. And to the extent that like uh, neutral emergent structures like blockchains can underwrite trust, the friction to cooperate between uh, unknown individuals actually like is quite uh dramatically reduced and the rate of cooperation can be massively enhanced. And I think we see this uh, more or less in the emergence of uh, basically the pseudonymous culture in blockchain, because how do you collaborate with somebody who's a pseudonym on the other side? And you cannot collaborate with the pseudonym on the other side if you needed their like, you know, uh, you needed to trust them. You needed to trust the legal domicile they were actually participating in. You needed to trust like their reputation. And this is how like Wall Street is built. And I saw this as like a paradigm shift for not only how we can re-architect finance, but basically like all of society, because cooperation is the underpinning of society. And if we can rethink how to architect structures of cooperation um, without having to uh, necessarily incur trust on an individual basis, but trust is underwritten by this emergent, distributed, decentralized networks. Uh, that's just something that fascinated me a lot and aligned with my own like broader life view. So I kind of went all in uh, in a few months after I kind of uh, understood this. So that has been... a, a but even then, like, I was still very far from crypto culture. Like, I was pretty deep in on the um, infrastructure side. We started looking at, okay, you know, if this Bitcoin, like, you have this uh, throughput and latency problems, how do we try to solve it? What would be protocols that have lower latency but have the same security guarantees? Uh, so I started doing a bunch of research on, basically, consensus protocols, scalability, some game theory around some of these things. Um, but it it was not until, and, and you know, actually, the the story there is uh, two two others. My my PhD advisor Pramod, who is now at Princeton, and my postdoctoral advisor David Shea, who is now at uh, Stanford. So the three of us actually had a startup four years back uh, called Trifecta, which was you know we had this new consensus protocol that we came up with as an academic, and initially we didn't want to build a startup or anything around it. We went to scaling Bitcoin, gave a talk about this and tried to convince like the uh, the, the Bitcoin guys to switch to uh, using our technology. And we realized that's just like- a, a That's a hard conversation ever. to get through. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had no connection. That just uh, shows to tell you like how far away I was from crypto culture to yeah. imagine you can go give a talk and convince the Bitcoin guys to change the protocol. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, but, you published uh, a Bitcoin proof of stake paper back in 
I mean, 2022, right? It's not that long ago. So, I mean, you've been, you've definitely been trying to improve yeah, that's Bitcoin. True. That still. is absolutely true. Yes. But the, the main shift in the Bitcoin to proof of stake paper is Bitcoin doesn't need to change. The same thing with Eigenlayer, Ethereum doesn't need to change. So this is one thing that like really got etched deep into my mental model is how to make things absolutely permissionless. And this is because, you know, that is the superpower of blockchains is permissionless innovation. And like, you know, that became one of my search is how to upgrade systems, you know, how to take these massive existing systems of emergent decentralized trust and supply it flexibly to pretty much anybody who would want it. So, but that was all like after we realized that, you know, there are these uh necessary governance bottlenecks in massively decentralized trust systems because, you know, you cannot upgrade a trust system willy-nilly uh, because, you know, then you don't have that trust anymore. So that's really like, you know, some of my earlier uh, work inspired us in the direction of uh, something like, you know, the paper that you're talking about, which basically underpinned Babylon, which is the idea that how do we bring trust from Bitcoin to any proof-of-stake network or Eigenlayer, which is basically the idea of how do you take trust from Ethereum and supply it flexibly to anybody who wants to build on top. But no, the uh, start startup experience was equally interesting because we tried to then say, okay, let's just go and do a startup, you know, to complete the picture on the Professor Coin thing. <laughs> 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 you know, he said, okay, let's just it, go build our own blockchain. Okay. Um yeah. We're, we're professor coins now. We have to take this to the end. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so you know, Shiram, I yeah. want to I want to spend the bulk of the episode on Eigenlayer, but before we dive into that, I want to ask you to close the loop on the academic conversation, right? Like, I come from Wall yeah. Street, and a lot of the time we'll talk about things like you know how much capital and VC is still on the sidelines, ready to invest in crypto, right? How many academics, or I don't know if you have numbers or percents, do you think are on the sidelines waiting to come into crypto or we're not, right? Because I mean, you have the best view here and I'm wondering what is holding back some of the smartest people in the world from coming into crypto or if you think that they're already here and we've already tapped that. No, I mean, by far not. And what is what is preventing them from coming into crypto is understanding what the real values and real value propositions of crypto are. And I think I think even people who are like pretty close or adjacent are actually quite um, quite opposed to basically the entire crypto system, and this is this perplexes me endlessly because I, I think at least I understand some of it, and the some of it is basically people who built distributed systems that underpin the cloud era, and you know when you when your work kind of underpins one paradigm, it is very difficult for you to think out of that paradigm. So that is one one reason. But I think in general, the uh, the core underlying value propositions of crypto as let's say the cooperation superhighway or like as this, um, this roadway to permissionless innovation as this mechanism for credible neutrality, these things are not well understood. I think the only narrative of crypto that is transparent to people outside crypto, particularly academics, since you asked me, is the state-free money concept from Bitcoin. And many, many people are like, okay, man, this is way out there on the uh, on the political horizon for me to be interested in. 
And I think this correction, actually even my own interest is not as much in state-free money as it is in institution uh, minimized or trust minimization on institutions, which includes, you know, sometimes the state, but includes much more importantly companies. And we see things like open AI, like uh, could be single point centralization for a massive uh, set of technologies. We saw that earlier with the Ubers, Amazons, um, all the digital platforms, the Googles, the Facebooks, Twitters, right, which had single point control on pretty much all of uh, the innovation that can be built on top of these common infrastructures. So my my own view is this idea of crypto as the digital commons. You know, I, I keep saying Ethereum is the digital commons. And I think this is not well understood. And with, without this being well understood, I don't think we'll be able to uh, attract the next, you know, next group of people into the space and add to this all the recent like scams and attacks from the government and so on it seems like it's like a very edge movement right so now. sure i'm you uh you got started in the early 90s with tech right i believe uh, i mean i did my undergrad starting 2002 yeah okay got it so just to, one more question on this before we move on can you give us a comparison to the previous tech cycle on web 2 like were academics equally on the you know side of not coming into the new tech world at the time, or do you think that this is unique to crypto? Uh, I was not closely observing the Web2 cycle because I was, as I said, I was in the wireless ecosystem. I also spent time in genomics. The comparison in both, uh, and some time on machine learning and AI, so I can compare to those cycles. I would say all these three things, like wireless, for example, academics were at the center, uh, uh, Andrew Witterby, uh, who started Qualcomm like in 1978 or something, like was actually a professor. Uh, Irving Jacobs was a professor. The person who started Broadcom, Henry Samueli, was a professor. Um, you know, so wireless was like basically um, run by Professor Taibraji Laroya, who started Slarion, which was uh, sold around a billion dollars to Qualcomm, was a PhD. And so this was kind of like the wireless. I would say necessarily academics were at the forefront. It's pretty complicated technology. And uh, I, I would say the same thing is true in genomics. Like, of course, academics are the center of it. They kind of invented pretty much a lot of the things that that changed genomics. The same thing with AI, right? Like academics either inside the university or like, you know, PhD types who went out and uh, built some of these technologies became the de facto of deep deep learning and so on. So uh, I think the reason crypto is viewed very differently is it is organizational technology. It is not a it is not a system where you have an existing like organizational paradigm and then it's just a technology upgrade of it, like machine learning or AI is. It is an upgrade of the organizational structures that underpin society. So it is much harder to like wrap one's head around like what is going on here. And particularly, there is a path dependence. I think like the initial Bitcoin movement was born in a certain way and a certain values and, uh, you know, got used or or misused in a certain way. And those all like kind of like colored uh, the academic view of crypto. I think, for example, when, you know, we used to write grants to the National Science Foundation, you know, we'd get responses saying, for example, oh, why do you want to work on it? Why should the National Science Foundation fund a technology that is used by drug dealers and whatever, criminals or something? Like, 
it's pretty out there opinions, but this is like the common understanding inside the academic space. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I used to cover the wireless space uh, in a previous life on Wall Street. It, it is kind of ironic that you went from peer-to-peer mesh networks, which, which is obviously like a really hard problem to solve, right? Like transmitting wireless signal across multi-hops back to crypto, which is, you know, hopefully peer-to-peer by default eventually. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's part of why I think a lot of the uh, algorithms and methods that we used to study the networks are easily applicable. So when my advisor approached me about like blockchain, I was I was convinced it's slam dunk on the technical side that this is actually like a strong fit to the type of things we used to think about. But I also wanted to to have a, you know, I'd moved to a point in my kind of life where I was not just working on things for curiosity wanted to work on things that I actually felt fully aligned with the philosophy and, you know, as a kind of like a life's work that I can take on for the next 20 years and build. So, but once no, I got convinced in that, like that's, that's, that's really awesome. No, that's, that's awesome. I'd love to do another podcast with you on the wireless side and, and your past tech work. But for now, for the audience, let's go on to Eigenlayer, right? So, I think a lot of people have a good understanding or maybe a good service level understanding of what Eigenlayer is, but you've always had the view that Eigenlayer is not a financial primitive, right? It's an infrastructure primitive. And you've noted that it's a general purpose marketplace for decentralized trust on Ethereum, right? This unbundles the trust layer so the Ethereum components can be reused for other purposes. There's a lot there. I mean, maybe you can share your elevator pitch and then maybe go deeper on the, the question and give some color. Absolutely. Thanks, uh, Tommy. So when we look at Eigenlayer, uh, why did we uh, really start it? And I think I'd give some little bit of background earlier, but what it allows people to do is to create infrastructure primitives. Like, you know, you want to build a data storage layer, you want to build a data availability layer, you want to build an Oracle, you want to build a new consensus protocol. You know, this is what I was seeing was actually a kind of, massively intellectually interesting from the academic community, but they had no common place to express that creativity uh, without having to go build their own trust networks. So the idea of Eigenlayer is basically uh, if we can take the underlying decentralized trust network of Ethereum and supply it flexibly to anybody who wants to build any of these new infrastructure primitives, then what we intend for that to happen is uh, Basically, you know, once you have this massive amount of permissionless innovation on the infrastructure sector, people building new oracles, people building new data availability layers, people building new bridges, people building new secure multi-party computation, new uh, trusted execution environments, all kinds of very, very interesting core primitives, they can all sit and compose on a common trust network rather than each of them sitting on disparate non-composable trust networks. So one way of thinking about Eigenlayer is it's a marketplace for decentralized trust where you can kind of buy or rent decentralized trust and uh, in the most flexible manner. So you can come and run like arbitrary functionality. So if you're a builder who wants to build any system that requires decentralized trust, then you can come and just deploy it on this Eigenlayer system, which basically then coordinates with Ethereum validators and their staking and make sure that they actually uh, perform the things that they commit to performing. And once they do this, essentially what happens to the um, uh, 
what we intend to happen is basically because you have all these innovative pieces that can now compose with each other instead of you know uh, getting fragmented trust networks and complex interoperation you actually have a common trust network and composable interactions at the at the at the level of distributed system modules rather than only at the level of smart contracts and you know just to place it in the context of the evolution of ethereum we think ethereum is actually the first marketplace for decentralized trust and why do i say that like you know before ethereum came up you know the whole idea of bitcoin was like hey here is decentralized trust and it is already packaged prepackaged and bundled with a particular use case which is a store of value combined with a payment system and when other people wanted to do other things like build a domain name system uh, called namecoin or whatever other applications they had to go start their own like proof of work they had their own mining primitives and all these things and it's just became very complex to build any new application and when vitalik and the broader ethereum community at that time observed this set of problems basically said can we build a common trust network on which basically anybody can build these applications and the idea was you know you have this common trust network the ethereum network and on top of which you make the system highly programmable then what happens is anybody can come and build a uh, new uh, applications so the way we think about ethereum is basically not only as the first marketplace for decentralized trust why is it a marketplace for decentralized trust because new applications are consuming trust from ethereum and in return paying a fee to ethereum so we talk about the block space economy here quite a bit in the crypto space but basically the block space economy is just a refined distilled economy of decentralized trust you have this underlying notion of decentralized trust and then that's all packaged through a certain consensus protocol and a certain virtual machine and everything and then like you have applications that can then consume that decentralized trust by buying block space so there's this economy of block space that is built on top of ethereum and actually what it did is i i also think i i said ethereum is the first marketplace for decentralized trust but ethereum is also i think the first modular blockchain and what do i mean by a modular blockchain is applications became modules that can consume decentralized common decentralized trust and so this i think was a big paradigm shift but ethereum actually had this deeper commitment to maximizing the rate of permissionless innovation and i would say the biggest gambit i've seen like in this direction is the layer to the commitment to the layer to era that ethereum took like two and a half three years back and the idea there was you know till now decentralized trust was offered only as like uh applications building on top of evm but what could happen in the in the roller era is basically now pretty much all the applications can be built not only as evm but you could build new virtual machines and other things as long as you have a way to consume ethereum's a uh, data block space so what happened was instead of selling the refined product of you know evm as the or re refined product of decentralized trust which is evm block space now ethereum started basically going one level deeper and started selling not just evm block space but the ability for rollups for example to write data to ethereum as a kind of like a common layer and you know rollups can only do settlement and data availability on ethereum so this is i think like a deepening of the commitment to being a decentralized trust marketplace and what eigenlayer does is break whatever remaining barriers that remain in making it absolutely flexible 
So what do I mean by that? In eigenlayer, when nodes are, so we go down to where is the root of decentralized trust? There is really two roots of decentralized trust. One comes from the economics of staking. Nodes put down money, and once they put down money, they can basically commit to doing a certain set of operations correctly. So there is an economic trust that is built on Ethereum. The second aspect is there is a decentralization trust. There is a certain number of validators. They're distributed around the world. It's going to be very difficult for them to collude with each other and, and so on. So these two aspects together form decentralized trust in Ethereum. And Eigenlayer basically lets anybody build on these aspects directly. Like you want to build a new consensus protocol. You could not do it in the layer two era with Ethereum security because consensus happens on the Ethereum validator set using the Ethereum consensus protocol. Instead, if you had the same validators with the same amount of stake, making credible commitments that they will abide by some conditions on these new uh, new systems that are built on top, then basically you are actually op op making this trust available to everybody on a much more flexible basis. So that's how I see the evolution of basically uh, the, the landscape of open innovation expanding while sharing a common trust basis, which is the Ethereum staking and decentralization. That was fascinating. Thank you, Shiram. Definitely, definitely a lot to think through there. Can you, um, can you contextualize this a bit more for us? Like looking at the Ethereum landscape today, we have L2s, we have you know, Arbitrum, Polygon, there's Starkware, right? We have applications that have their own tokens in DeFi. Um, there's also like a lot of other cool things that you mentioned that you can build with Eigenlayer. Um, that would be pretty hard, like DA layers and VMs and things like that. Can you just give us a couple examples of what the Ethereum ecosystem would look like to the user or the developer if Eigenlayer was live from the get-go? Because I'm just having some trouble like conceptualizing what this all looks like with Eigenlayer versus what we have right now. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, uh, what what I'll do is basically kind of run through like what is right now happening with the layer two ecosystem and what the points of interface of the layer twos with Ethereum are and that there are bottlenecks remaining and how Eigenlayer can come and kind of patch all these bottlenecks up. So number one, like what, what is happening with rollups is essentially you're offloading computation and uh, memory to off-chain systems these off-chain systems run everything on not on the Ethereum chain, but they submit some proofs, which can be either like mediated via an economic game, which is what optimistic rollups are, or it, the the game can be like basically completely cryptographic, where like the off-chain system basically makes a proof that they've done the computation correctly to Ethereum. So that's the core thing that is happening in the um, uh, in the layer two landscape today. Is how do we build? either new virtual machines or new execution environments. But at the end of the day, they're all able to prove those executions correctly to Ethereum. So it's a it's a landscape for improving the, um, the execution throughput of Ethereum. But there are still many other bottlenecks which uh, rollups have to inherit from Ethereum. And uh, I, I'll go through some of them and explain how Eigenlayer can completely solve all these problems. Number one is even if you're a rollup, you're offloading computation and execution to to another uh, system. The problem is you still have to make proofs to Ethereum. Uh, not, so you have to make proofs, that's number one. But the second thing is 
you also have to publish either the input or the output of the computation because you want other people to transparently view it as well as continue the computation onwards later if that node goes down. So even though computation and memory management can be offloaded, there is a network bandwidth problem for Ethereum because all of these rollups still need to write data to Ethereum. So that's the first limitation of Ethereum today is the data bandwidth of Ethereum. And the numbers here, I think, you know, when I first did the calculation, I was like, is it really correct? Ethereum, if you use the Ethereum uh, system today purely for writing data, like you don't do any computation, it is unprocessed data, just use Ethereum as like a data dumping layer. Then the Ethereum, even then, the Ethereum's data bandwidth is maximum of 83 kilobytes per second. There is no Uniswap running, there is no compound, nothing. Like basically it's just dumping data to Ethereum no execution, even then the data bandwidth is 83 kilobytes per second. What this means is pretty much all the rollups, all the layer twos have to just share this 83 kilobytes per second. So there are updates coming up in Ethereum, like most importantly, EIP4844, which basically opens up an equivalent size lane just for purely for data. And it will be initially at 20 kilobytes per second and eventually going up to 80 kilobytes per second. But this lane is purely for writing data, so it doesn't conflict with the Uniswap and the compounds and, and so on. So you can think of after EIP 4844, the data bandwidth of Ethereum will still be like around 80 kilobytes per second and, and starting with 20 and maybe going up to 80. So this is very, very small. If you want to think of blockchains or particularly in our view, Ethereum as the cooperation superhighway. And so how do we resolve this is if we built a data availability layer, for example, which uses the Ethereum staking, which uses the Ethereum decentralization and so on, then essentially, and if all of the stakers opted in, then you can potentially get the same amount of trust, but by building better and better data availability protocols, you can actually increase this bandwidth massively. And we are building the first one like this. We are running already at 10 megabytes per second. So you can see already that's like, a, you know, more than 100 X improvement in the relative bandwidth. And we think you can actually improve this like another four orders of magnitude in the several years coming ahead. So data bandwidth being like a log jam today uh, of the modular Ethereum ecosystem can be solved using Eigenlayer. But this is only a first example. And uh, I think when many people, for example, confuse Eigenlayer with the data availability protocol, that's not the case. Eigenlayer is a trust network that can supply trust to everybody and wants to supply trust to anybody who wants to consume it. And just to showcase the power of the system, we've just built a data availability protocol on top called EigenTA, which just addresses this first limitation of rollups today, which is the logjam on Ethereum data bandwidth. Uh, sure, it, this, is, this is awesome. Yeah. No, let, let's stay with this example before we, we move on. Yeah. A couple of quick questions. So if Ethereum has this limitation of the 83 kilobytes per second, it's expanding to, I, I guess, 163 if they add an additional 80. Um, uh, the, the, the the thing is, even with, with the new one, the 80 is going to be for data. And, and I, I said the 80 kilobytes per second today is including if you don't do any computation on Ethereum, but that's not going to be the case. So what, what Ethereum is doing is creating a separate lane just for data. And that will be at 80 kilobytes per second. There is a roadmap to improve it from 80 kilobytes per second of pure data to dunk sharding, which is maybe three years out. And that would be basically 1.3 megabytes per second. But the that's the roadmap right now for Ethereum. Understood. Can you conceptualize what that means moving up the stack, though? I mean, we, we see L2s. We've heard of layer 3s. 
like what is the throughput you know capacity that eventually rolls down to that limitation on the 83 kilobytes i'm just trying to figure out what that can actually yes. enable all, all of them like all the l2s and l3s any anybody who wants to inherit full ethereum security all are limited by like the total bandwidth data bandwidth of all of them summed up who want to inherit full ethereum security that's the biting condition add up all of them their total data bandwidth cannot be greater than this number because that's the rate at which so i think of this as you know when we think of you know building cooperation or coordination superhighways there is a bandwidth of coordination and you know this particularly comes to back to my own wireless ways of thinking you know bandwidth is band spectrum is one of the most you know valuable resources and you want to maximize the bandwidth relative to a given spectrum utilization and the same thing we think about here is uh you want to maximize the coordination bandwidth and uh the the total bandwidth of all the systems that inherit ethereum security is going to be capped at 83 kilobytes per second in the short term and in the long term with downsharding that will go up to 1.3 megabytes per second but our view is you know we are very bullish cryptos like we think uh, it the next generations of recommendation systems ais everything will be run on crypto any digital platform is much better run on crypto so i think we 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 are of the belief that you know, we need to get this to gigabytes per second, if not terabytes per second. So that's, that's sure. Can you can you get like hundreds of thousands of transactions per second on an L3 to an L2 to Ethereum, given that constraint of the 83? Or I'm just yes. trying to like figure out yes. what we can actually do without if yes, like absolutely. if we didn't have Eigen, basically. Yes, I I think the thing is uh like. There are transaction compression methods which basically like compress each transaction to like a few bytes even instead of normally a transaction size is 200 bytes and you know you can compress transaction down to like you know four bytes. So if you did that basically 83 kilobytes divided by four bytes is like 20,000 transactions per second. You know you can get like uh, a lot of throughput 20,000 transactions per second is a lot but I think the 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 biting thing here is we're used to thinking about like transactions as financial things like a node a pays node b but if you start imagining that you know you want to run the digital economy uh not just the like financial primitives but things like twitter things like facebook and other things on top of a common um commitment layer like ethereum you know we find this is not enough. Like 20,000 transactions per second is a lot for financial applications, but it is not a lot for, um, you know, all kinds of other things. And and I like I said, there is an upgrade coming up on Ethereum called Dangsharding, uh, which we hope really like uh, goes well, which is going to improve this to 1.3 megabytes per second. There's another 20x there. So go from 20,000 transactions per second to maybe 400, 500,000 transactions per second. So you can definitely achieve that, but this is purely assuming there are financial transactions that can be represented in a few bytes. But as we think through like what coordination means, coordination means expression of detailed personal preferences. You know, when I do a trade, I may want to only trade with certain person. So this is even for financial use cases. But then you go to non-financial use cases, you're communicating some particular set of, you know, in Twitter, you're communicating a tweet, it's a bunch of words. You may be communicating much deeper uh, things per transaction, and then this calculation doesn't hold up. Got it. Understood. That's it's actually pretty interesting. Can, can you also expand on the 
interplay with the L2s on Ethereum with the data availability layer that you are building. So you're not exactly, you're not building any sort of rollups yourself, right? You're just asking no, no, the rollups. No, we are not. We are not. Absolutely. Okay. So we are only building everything complementary to the rollup ecosystem, or we expect many things complementary to the rollup ecosystem to be built on Eigenlayer. And how does this interact with the, the rollups? So the way to think of rollups is, you know, is a mechanism for scaling. And scaling what? And if you look at each of the uh, resources in a given node, right, it's basically scaling the, you know, you fix the amount of resources per node, but the total amount of like, you know, throughput that I should be able to do should scale. So that's the core principle of scaling. And one way that layer tools scale the uh, system is by not requiring every Ethereum node to execute transactions or to uh, have enough RAM or memory to run these transactions because they're all run off-chain and every node only verifies short proofs. So that's what is happening. Basically, execution scaling is the domain of these uh, these ZK rollups and the optimistic rollups. But these rollups still have to write the data to Ethereum. So what that means is they the network... So the Ethereum network has to download and store the data for a temporary amount of time, basically providing a data availability service to these rollups. And that is the only remaining constraint in the rollup world. So there is no constraint of how fast nodes can execute transactions. So that is what has been removed because of the layer two scaling. But the, the constraint on every node still has to propagate the data and download and store it for at least a short amount of time. That is the remaining constraint. And by building protocols where every node doesn't have to download and store all the data, but nodes only download samples of the data, but together the network has enough data. That's the way to scale the data bandwidth of Ethereum. That's pretty cool. So if I'm understanding correctly, how do you convince the L2s today on Ethereum to use Eigenlayer's DA layer instead of write to Ethereum? What is the sell there for them? It's yes. Yes, and uh, right. the The core sell is basically the cost of data availability, right? So the cost of data avail availability of Ethereum is, uh, you know, right now it's a bad market, so it's somewhat lower. But in a bull market, when there is a lot of transactions, basically this will shoot up rapidly. We've seen like twenty to fifty x swings in gas prices, right? In our bull market, so. That will basically be the the dominant cost of, for example, running an optimistic rollup like Arbitrum is basically writing to data availability, and eventually the dominant cost of even CK rollups to write to, to, on Ethereum will be purely data availability. This is because the proofs of the layer tools like uh, uh, zk sync or Starkware or whatever, when they write to Ethereum, they're compressing the computation quite a bit. So the computation uh, proofs are actually nearly fixed size, whereas they ha they still have to write the data to Ethereum. So the data is the dominant cost, gas cost that is paid by layer two to Ethereum. And by having a data layer which has much better economics and much higher throughput, if you want to imagine things like on-chain gaming, like you know there are teams building fully on-chain games. You know, these are all primitives that simply cannot be built with the Ethereum data bandwidth and and the Ethereum cost structure on like unit data, and uh, something like EigenDA would basically provide this service. And you know, you hinted at the layer three architecture quite a bit. 
So what could end up happening is basically many of the rollups will still write data to Ethereum uh, as a layer two, but the layer three is living on top of them can write data to eigenlayer, eigenDA. So that's the pattern that we're seeing, uh, which a lot of the major rollups may actually take up is layer two writes data to Ethereum, and but pretty much all of the applications may still live on layer threes. And these layer threes can write data to eigenDA. Because at the end of the day, Ethereum DA is more secure just because it is the, it is the natively integrated DA. And what it means by natively, natively integrated DA is you know, you're you're building this chain and if, you know, in a given block the data was unavailable, then the chain will fork to a kind of like go along with another fork where the data is available because otherwise nodes won't accept that block. So having a natively integrated DA is the highest form of security, but the second highest form of security on something like Ethereum would be something like Eigenlayer because it is the same set of nodes, same set of stake participating in this additional data availability protocol. No, that's that's fascinating. And thanks for bearing with me as I, I learn in real time here with you. So basically, the L2s on Ethereum have achieved much cheaper transactions and scale because there's a lot of batching going on and then they're rolling down to Ethereum. But what you're saying is Eigenlayer can make this even cheaper because when they have to roll down to Ethereum during bull markets, the data availability uh, component is very expensive. So instead, they can write to you guys, which has a much higher network bandwidth level. That is correct. And there are a lot of other like finer grained economics we've thought about. And, you know, when you think about how uh, it, uh, how networks think about uh, costs today or pricing today, pretty much all the networks today are built on congestion pricing. And congestion pricing is like EIP-1559. It's basically every blockchain in existence today has something like this, which is essentially, you know, as the demand for block space increases and gets close to the capacity of block space, then the price increases. That's the core contention or, or the core pricing mechanism for blockchains. But, you know, the thing is we are trying to build for a, a world of data abundance, not a world of data scarcity. And if you build for a world of data abundance, not data scarcity, congestion pricing is a bad strategy because there is no congestion. In fact, that's the world that we want to build is there is no congestion. Why should that be congestion? So, you know, and, and I like to give this analogy to like, you know, we think a lot about block space and block space demand and all that. And, you know, you can, you know, the interesting thing is there is no such analogous concept called cloud space. Amazon will create more cloud, you know, if more people need it. And that's really how, the way it should be is kind of like the... Um, the supply of block space should increase if there is more demand. And the way we incentivize this, the way Amazon incentivizes this is by having two kinds of instances, reserved instances and spot instances. Reserved instances are places where you can go and reserve a, a certain amount of like computational nodes for the next year. And spot instances, you can just go and like demand, hey, give me a spot instance right now. But of course, if you reserve the instance, it's going to be cheaper than getting a spot instance. And that's the same kind of economics that is built on EigenDA. And if you think about like why uh, a, a rollup may not want to be a rollup, but rather want to go be its own chain, is because you know with the current model, uh, the pricing of data is highly uncertain. So when when you are a rollup today, your cost economics is uncertain. This is like running an airline without having any control on the price of jet fuel, and like this is not a 
sustainable way to run a business. So you have to either have financial markets where you would basically hedge the price of oil, in this case, hedge the price of gas, or you need to just have a contract with, you know, one of the largest providers of oil on, you know, you have these many barrels of oil per month delivered at this price for the next year. And that's the equivalent of like block space reservations. And Eigen DA has native block space reservation, long-term block space reservation. So you'd come and say, hey, I need this like crazy amount of bandwidth and you just reserve it for the next year. And if you reserve it for the next year, you know exactly what your cost structure is. And when you can go and tell your customers that, hey, I'm running thousand transactions per second or, you know, this much, you know, of gaming uh, hours for this this cost, and you know exactly what it is, and so that's something that I think man, the that's going to be cool. Need to really <laughs> Having being able to plan your expenses in real time in crypto that that's going to be solid to have. Yeah, I think we we need to move from right now. We are at the point where we are starting to get good spot guarantees, which is you know the spot markets for block space, which is you know things like MEV and things like EIP fifteen fifty nine and all these things have kind of like tried to create a strong spot market for like blockchain but i think we need to think a little bit longer term that actually you you want to have long-term block space auctions and so on no that that's totally fair so we spent a good amount of time talking about the da layer on eigenlayer and its interplay with ethereum l2s i'd like to switch gears a little bit and go back to what i think people are maybe a little bit more accustomed to which is just the restaking layer so the idea is that with eigenlayer you can take your eth stake you can restake it for additional use cases. You earn additional yield. You don't need a new cost of capital because you're using an asset you already have. And you could open yourself up to new slashing additions, but you're also opening yourself up to new yield. Can you maybe describe a bit about the restaking layer with Eigenlayer? Because I think, as you said before, people sometimes get confused between that and the DA layer itself. That's right. So the restaking layer is essentially like, you know, every Ethereum validator today. So can do one of one or one of the following two things. One is uh, on Eigenlayer uh, when it goes live. So the first one we call liquid restaking and the second one we call native restaking. What is liquid restaking? If you're already participating in a liquid staking protocol and have a liquid staking token, you just take the liquid staking token and deposit it into the Eigenlayer contract as collateral. I wouldn't say even collateral is basically like you're staking it and you're making a commitment to do some validation tasks. And when you stake it and then like uh, uh, use it for validation tasks, what happens is if you don't do your validation tasks, you may lose your uh, stake deed that you've deposited into the eigenlayer contracts. So this is what happens. This is called liquid restaking. So you take a liquid staking derivative and then restake onto the eigenlayer platform. But you can also do um, native restaking. What is native restaking is basically you stake in Ethereum and then set the withdrawal credentials to the eigenlayer contracts so normally you have this thing called a withdrawal credential is when you withdraw the money, where does it go to? And you set the withdrawal credentials to the eigenlayer contracts. In the eigenlayer contracts, you can set the withdrawal to yourself. So what happens is instead of going to Ethereum and asking for withdrawing whenever you want to withdraw the money, you'd go to eigenlayer and ask to withdraw and eigenlayer will trigger the withdrawal from Ethereum for you. And what this does is this enables the eigenlayer contracts to enforce your commitments. If you opted into eigenlayer and said that I'm validating for a data availability, I'm validating for a bridge, I'm validating for, you know, these different services, then you, 
if you if you continue to do it and actually hold by your commitments, you would actually earn an additional reward from these protocols for doing this computational services. But if you don't do it, then you may lose your uh, deposit or you may lose your staking staked amount uh, on Eigenlayer. So that's the core principle of Eigenlayer is it allows stakers. That's the one side of the market, which is basically it allows stakers who are already participating in the Ethereum staking ecosystem to opt in to this additional service that that the additional services validating these additional services. The other side of the Eigenlayer market is people building these services. Imagine you are an innovator and you built a new like data availability layer. Like pre-Eigenlayer, there was no option for you to just say, hey, I'm building on top of the Ethereum trust layer or a subset of the Ethereum trust layer rather than going and having to start your own trust network. Today, you, if you want to build a bridge, you know, with Eigenlayer, if you want to build a bridge, if you want to build a new consensus protocol, if you want to build a new even layer one, you can just come and say like, hey, you know, which of these stakers want to opt in and participate in this uh, uh, validation of this new layer one or new bridge or new multi-party computation or whatever other things that you want. So the amount of flexibility you have in consuming trust in Eigenlayer is is fully flexible or fully programmable. So what it means is you can specify each validating node what actions they should be doing. And if they don't hold to their actions, they may lose their you know uh, stake. And this is really the uh, service that the validators are getting. So imagine, or, or the service builders are getting, uh, just like AWS helped accelerate the rate of innovation in uh, mobile and other services where you would just have to write your code and you don't have to worry about hosted infrastructure and things like that. You just send it to AWS and AWS will do everything for you. We think Eigenlayer is the analog of something like this in the crypto world because, you know, of course, you don't want to just send your thing to AWS because AWS doesn't underwrite decentralized trust. Whereas, you know, Ethereum nodes can underwrite decentralized trust for you and, you know, with also the economic power of staking. So what it means is you write these new interesting decent, you know, let's say you write a new data storage protocol and then you say, hey, I want to I want to build it. You earlier had to do what Filecoin did, which is kind of try to build a whole entire parallel ecosystem. Instead, on Angular, what you would do is you would say, write this software and say that whenever somebody stores one gigabyte, you know, one ETH gets paid to the, you know, Ethereum validators. And, uh, you know, because I created the software as a creator, I get 30% or 40% whatever, some cut of this. And that's an economics you can design. And you throw that on top of Eigenlayer. So there are a variety of business models one can build on top of Eigenlayer. The simplest one is what I said, which is you just have your wallet, which is the innovator's wallet, and basically take a cut of like any value that goes through the layer. Or you may build actually a token ecosystem on top of your thing and like the fees go to the token holders. It could be that uh, you want some aspect of security to come from Ethereum, but some aspect of security to come from your own token stakers. So, you know, Eigenlayer is a fully flexible, programmable uh, environment where you can design these incentives to be highly flexible. So that's the two sides of the market. The restakers are opting in to provide their validation services to new 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 things that are built on top. The people building new things on top don't want to get a new ecosystem started just for, you know, underwriting decentralized trust. And it is very difficult to get a new ecosystem started which has enough economic security, right? Imagine, you know, there is some existing uh, Oracle or bridge or something which has a certain amount of economic security, maybe a couple of billion dollars, 
and now you want to start your own oracle which may be theoretically better but for you to get to the two billion dollars worth of economic security it is going to take like forever and by that time if you don't get an option and it's very difficult to get an option because you don't have economic security whereas you this this bootstrapping problem is completely solved with eigenware sure i'm, I'm not going to tell the chain link army that you said that but if they listen and hear that you know it's on you to deal with them but it's it's fascinating to hear. So is the DA layer going to be a customer or not a customer, that is but correct. That it'll is be correct. a customer. Okay. That is correct. DA layer is a customer of the Eigen layer. Just we want to establish the patterns and primitives for how somebody builds a new service on top of Eigen layer. And Eigen DA is what we call it. And Eigen DA is going to be like a first service, which is a customer of the Eigen layer protocol. Exactly. Got it. So I, I have my state ETH. I go to Eigenlayer's site or UI or, or however it's going to work. And the Eigen DA is there is the first use case, use case that I could opt into. That is correct. Okay, cool. And then as a as somebody who opts in, if something mischievous happens on the DA layer, I get slashed. But on the flip side, I'm also earning the fees that the L2s are paying to leverage Eigen's DA's layer. That is correct. That's so pretty cool. I, I... Yeah, exactly. So basically, it is an opting in to a potentially a new system and its new computational requirements and what the slashing conditions are for that layer, and you are uh, you are getting an additional reward because of that. And one uh, one thing I want to point out here, I think you started earlier with this question, which is uh, that I think of Eigenlayer as uh, as a service for infrastructure providers in the ecosystem rather than a financial primitive. And I want to highlight the difference between if somebody else wanted to do restaking as a financial primitive, how it would look and what type of use cases they would prioritize are very different from what what we are doing and what type of use cases we prioritize. And the idea is, you know, basically rooted in the following observation. All of the yield from DeFi comes from underwriting a price risk, right? You hold and buy a certain token, you go and do an LP for a certain, uh, I think maybe LP is the cleanest example. So you do a liquidity provision for a kind of like an ETH to USD pool. Now you're basically underwriting some price risk between ETH USD. And because you're underwriting the price risk, you get a certain yield. And so this is the uh, this is the dominant mechanism for why there is non-zero yield in DeFi. Whereas validation yield is a completely different beast. and why do I say that? Why why is that a yield for validation? There's a there, there is a yield for validation because somebody wants their computational services to be run with a certain integrity, right? And but how do they know that there is going to be some computational integrity? They know there's going to be some computational integrity because you put down some bunch of stake, or or validator puts down a bunch of stake and says that, hey, I'm promising that I'm actually going to kind of like hold by the validation conditions. I'll run this software, not run a malicious software. So, and from the validator's point of view, if you run the right version of the software and there is no code bugs, this is important, but let's assume for now there's no code bugs in the new service that you're opting into, then what happens is basically there is zero risk yield possible on validation. Why? Because I'm opting in and I'm putting my money down and I'm saying that, you know, I'm going to follow these conditions and there's no code bugs then what happens is if there's no code bug, I'd never lose my money. Because this is something you as a validator 100% control, whether you're running the right version of the software or running a malicious version of the software. But you do not control 
the price risk and price fluctuations of a financial market. And so the set of risks that you're taking as a validator in Eigenit is very, very different from the set of risks that you take when you're opting in to provide services as a, a you know, a, a to underwrite price risk in a DeFi protocol. That's why we think of Eigenlayer as the universal validation marketplace or a trust marketplace, rather than a kind of like a universal collateral pool for like, you know, general uh, uh, financial functionalities. Got it. No, that that is super helpful. I mean, I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but it sounds somewhat, maybe not reminiscent because I don't want to say that, but it sounds somewhat similar to, I guess, the Cosmos vision of leveraging the Atom Hub for security. But it also seems a little different because I think, if I remember correctly, the Atom Hub has to approve other chains. So like there's a whole governance process, whereas with Eigenlayer, it sounds like it's on the use case to sell the customer or, or to sell the each staker. And then they kind of opt in to protect that new use case. That is correct. Okay. So, you know, there is this like uh, both these ecosystems, uh, Cosmos and Ethereum started at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Okay. What do I mean by opposite ends of the spectrum? So Ethereum prioritized chat security, right? Like that is why Ethereum is a common platform on which any dApp basically gets the chat security. On the other side, uh, but the amount of innovation was restricted to only writing smart contracts on Ethereum. So you have a huge amount of chat security, but the amount of innovation or like the, the layers at which you can perform innovation was very restricted. On the other side, you had Cosmos initially started with, hey, here is an SDK. Anybody can go and modify and build whatever they want with it. Zero chat security, but max massive rate of open innovation. And what has happened is there's a convergent uh, dynamics here. Ethereum over time went from like uh, just, you know, programmability at the level of smart contracts to now programmability at the level of layer tools to with eigenlayer programmability at the level of anything. Like you can reprogram like arbitrary things. And so essentially what, what we see is an increasing level of open innovation on Ethereum. And I think the exact opposite is happening on Cosmos, which is Cosmos started with a massive rate of innovation. Basically, you can change anything in the SDK that you want, but had zero shared security. What we see with interchain security or replicated security, as it's called now, is basically some amount of shared security. The Atom Hub can share security to the uh, uh, to the new chains that start up. And as you point out correctly, it is actually... Uh, needs the governance permissions from the uh, from the Atom Hub in order to basically supply the security. And there are versions of like chat security that the Cosmos community is working on, which expand beyond like this um, this uh, this kind of governance upgrades. And there is the notion of mesh security. There's the notion of Babylon chat security from Ethereum. We wrote a paper actually called Trust Boost, which is a mechanism to absorb trust from if there are n chains, each of which have one billion dollar stake, can you get like an emergent structure which is like, uh, which has n billion dollar stake without any governance permissions on any of these n chains? So there are all these fascinating things that I think I see them as like a convergent dynamic. But I want to highlight some other differences because we build on Ethereum. This forces us to like do a lot of things differently, and I think they have their own values, and and it leads to a different set of like trade offs and and, and interesting outcomes. Number one, Ethereum, of course, we cannot get any governance upgrades for 
restakers to opt into new services because there is no governance structure available and Ethereum doesn't want to have that. Number two, Ethereum is built on this thesis that there should be a lot of home stakers. And what happens when you start supplying security to like all kinds of other services is, you know, you need a lot more computational infrastructure. Whereas Cosmos has a certain notion of like delegation built in. And so you can assume that these more professionalized validators can actually run uh, these, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of chains. But even then, like there is a limit to how many chains can be run and supported. So, so how are we solving that with the uh, eigenlayer ecosystem is we look at only highly scalable ways of building things. And, you know, when we say we look at, at least this is our vision is basically to continue to support, you know, a highly decentralized staking economy. So what it, what it means is we are looking at, for example, when I mentioned EigenDA, EigenDA increases the Ethereum data bandwidth from 83 kilobytes per second to 10 megabytes per second. But the node requirement, but the per node requirement of EigenDA, or the per node requirement of Ethereum is roughly like two megabytes per second. But the per node requirement of EigenDA is only 0.3 megabytes per second. So we reduce the node requirement and increase the system throughput simultaneously just because the architectures are more scalable. And this is an underlying vision that we want to continue to build on, not only for EigenDA, but for the many, many services that can be built on top. There's at least like some category of services which are high yield and high trust, which are run by all kinds of home stakers. And so this is a really interesting phenomenon that Eigenlayer unleashes, which is the ability for, uh, and this is a constraint that we are handed to by Ethereum. And we, we are very much aligned with that constraint because we see Eigenlayer as a marketplace for decentralized trust. And the more decentralization that exists, the more powerful this marketplace itself is. And uh, so we want to actually not only help nodes stay decentralized, we also want to potentially create a premium for decentralization. Till now, if you look at the kind of like the marketplace or in general, the incentives for centralization versus the incentives for decentralization, there is really no incentive for decentralization other than you'd say, okay, you know, my, my eat, my keys, my home, I run it, right? Like that's one incentive, it's a soft incentive. But the algorithm itself doesn't give you any preferential treatment for being more decentralized. But there's a whole bunch of use cases. Imagine, you know, I want to build a, you know, a secret sharing service where I take a secret and then split it into small chunks and store it on all the end nodes. And to recover the secret, you know, some on-chain condition needs to be triggered, at which time I can retrieve the secret shares from all these nodes. But if the nodes are all colluding or all the same, or there's not enough decentralization, this system simply doesn't work. So when a service builder comes and builds a service like this, he may say, I only want the highly decentralized nodes. And how does he know or she know whether these nodes are decentralized? They can express their subjective preferences on Eigenlayer and say that, hey, I only want like native restakers to participate. I only want like non-exchange accounts to participate or whatever the set of conditions that they want. So this can actually actively promote decentralization because there's an additional yield that decentralized nodes can get on top of Eigenlayer. So... That's a long answer for your question there. No, it's a it's a fantastic answer. I mean, I wasn't aware of the preferences side. I mean, it, is there any way to take that a step further? Like, do you think that applications will be able to opt into nodes that are, say, geographically outside the U.S.? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, you know, there's all kinds of preferences that... To, so essentially, 
you can imagine that the services so a b imagine like actually an emergence of a new category of oracles called decentralization oracles which will actually tell which validators are more decentralized and which validators are not and this is of course subjective right it is not objective but that's the whole point is that the services can decide whether this subjective opinions make sense or not and since validation is a long term task we don't expect like this oracle to need to update every second or everything like it can update every week or every month and so that so the idea of having like geographical location oracles the idea of having geographical as well as stake decentralization oracles would be like quite powerful and interesting and we imagine that services would demand for a certain amount of decentralization when they opt in and but i also want to say that there will be services which do not need decentralization for example if you just want somebody to run a computation and then post a collateral saying that that computation is correct the collateral is what matters because if you have a billion dollar collateral then you know it doesn't really matter whether it comes from 1 million users putting 1000 dollars or 1 billion one guy putting up 1 billion dollar that the computation is correct because even if it's a single whale putting up 1 billion dollars it is going to be correct because otherwise they're going to lose that 1 billion dollar so there are so certain things that inherit security purely from economics and there are certain services that simply cannot inherit security purely from economics censorship resistance is a great example i gave the example of secret sharing as another example in general say, what what is the category called the category of secure multiparty computation as another example these do not inherit security from economics they need a large amount of decentralization and depending on services we'll start just like we started seeing that there is a certain modularity of services there's also a certain modularity of trust like economic trust is a different kind of module decentralization trust is a different kind of module and as the first kind of general purpose marketplace for decentralized trust it's kind of incumbent upon us to help commoditize trust in a way that actually promotes the right kind of like services to like take up the right kind of trust now that is that is really cool and I mean, I guess a little bit tangential to what you're talking about, and I know we DM'd about this a couple of weeks or months ago, but one of the concerns I had was was probably also potentially a benefit, right? The idea that if you're leveraging E3 staking for a use case, right? Like let's say it's a public good or let's say it's, you know, whatever example you want to use here, you don't necessarily, or I guess if you can launch your own token and leverage restaking on Eigenlayer, but I'm wondering if that messes with the incentives, right? Like, you know, if I'm a new founder and I want to start an Oracle, right? Like my upside is in the upside value of that token. But if I'm using Eigenlayer for restaking to secure that network, my token, I guess on the surface, isn't as valuable because it's not the security asset. I, I guess, how do you think through like the game theory of launching your own token to start a project versus you using Eigenlayer and opting into their restaking layer? Yeah, great question. I think one way to think about it is this: uh, DApps already do this, right? If you're a DApp, you have a token, and there's an economy on the token, and it is, you know, thriving, and without itself having to be the security layer. And now we are starting the next set of like layer twos. You know, Arbitrum just launched. The Arb token doesn't underwrite security for the Arbitrum system. but it is a pretty valuable uh, token because you know it has exposure to the fees that goes through it has governance powers to upgrade these things you know there can be non zero value in the token economy without the token itself having to play a part in staking but the 
the final answer to this is even if you wanted your own token to play a part in staking, it's still possible to use Eigenlayer where you can say that some aspect of security comes from the your own token staking and some aspect of security comes from uh, Ethereum staking. And the second aspect of having to get having some amount of security from Ethereum staking is very helpful to avoid certain kinds of like death spirals where the total value of the token as it keeps going down then what could happen is that applications disintegrate or like uh, uh, you know remove integrations from this layer and as the applications remove integrations from this layer the token goes down further in value so there is a kind of security death spiral that can happen and by having a certain amount of economic security under return by the Ethereum ecosystem for your service, you are actually protecting yourself from these death spirals, helping yourself bootstrap this token economy. I, like I give some examples, if you do not have enough economic security, nobody is going to use the application on day one. So it's impossible to bootstrap the application. But even after, after bootstrapping, there is the value of actually having a certain uh, minimum amount of security, even if your token is not highly valuable. And so these are the two two reasons why, even if you're interested in having your own token provide staking security, it's useful to integrate with Eigenlayer. Understood. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of projects I've seen launch have staking, but it's kind of pointless and circular, right? Like the staking isn't actually doing anything. It's just like a token sync for issuance. So I guess if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, like projects can still launch their own token. There can be a value flow from that use case to that token. But on the flip side, there is obviously the part of that income or revenue is going to pay Eigen's uh, restakers. That is correct. That is correct. Yes. So to even bootstrap the Eigen layer restaking, we expect like, you know, especially uh, systems that have their own token can incentivize restakers by paying, for example, in their own token. Got it. Okay. That that makes a lot more sense. And I guess just thinking through, like zooming back out to the user or like the ETH restaker, I think a lot of people view Ethereum as like a very solid asset, right? Like Lindy effect. It's been a while. There's obviously Shanghai and some, some changes going on now. But, you know, I think people always want to go to sleep at night having a really good understanding of the risk that they have for something like ETH, right? How do you think people are going to understand or conceptualize all of the ripple effects of, or potential ripple effects, because none have happened, but with restaking their ETH? Like if I choose to restake five times or 10 times or 20 times, like do I have to be an expert in all of these projects as code to understand my risk or how do do you think through that side? Yes, this is actually like a very important question. So when you're restaking, you need to understand some of the uh, slashing risks that you're incurring from these new services. You know, whether whether you're restaking five times or 10 times is not material as much as like whether you are restaking uh, with an understanding of the code and whether there is, you know, incumbent audits. And, you know, in the initial use cases that we're going to launch, there is going to be a slashing veto, which is a kind of like a, a small committee which can veto like slashings. That's the only thing that they can do. And whether you trust a committee like this. So these are all the different considerations that one needs to take when they're restaking their ETH on Eigenlayer. Uh, it, there is a, both an educational curve as well as a curve to really understand how we are going to vet and uh, uh, create a broader economy of permissionless innovation. Uh, I think uh, 
we're we're engaging closely with the community on these questions over uh, over time. But when it's absolutely important for a staker to understand, okay, when I'm putting my stake, what are the commitments that I'm making? I'm the commitments that I'm making are you know the ability to run this particular node software, and I I'm assuming that the node software is uh, if I run this node software, this smart contract uh, on Ethereum on Eigenlayer is not going to be able to slash me. And you have to read the smart contract or have somebody vet the smart contract, just like there's a smart contract audit ecosystem today, which you have to rely on as a user, as a staker, you have to rely on these kind of audits to make sure that they are vetted. And then finally, uh, there is a last backstop, which is the slashing veto on the Eigenlayer system, which essentially, uh, you know, if there was a bad slashing because of a programming error, the committee can veto it. But as a staker, you have to evaluate whether you're trusting at least either one of the smart contract or the slashing veto. So that's nice. the... Is there like um, is there like a template or some sort of check that people can see when they're opting into restake on something new in Eigenlayer? Like, you know, I, I'm not sure what it is, like some sort of verification or some sort of, you know, hey, we're using the same sort of code. Is, is there anything that'll help people like determine the safety of restaking or, or anything like that or I, I mean back in DeFi summer days we would like we would like copy yeah. code on like Uniswap to make sure like contracts were in change before aping in <laughs> I'm thinking if there's something similar here yes yes that that is I think like uh, going to be uh, a set of like example or canonical middleware that show up because each middleware is different like how to slash for data availability is different from how to slash for reorg being a chain is different for how to slash for somebody not abiding by some MEV rules. And so these are all going to be very different. So I think the scope of um, the, the, the types of like slashing and contracts that we need to opt in are broader. So, but what we do envision is over time, there'll be like a few that emerge, just like you mentioned Uniswap or Compound or Aave emerged as these like canonical examples that people can then like, you know, if there was a fork of it, you know, with minor changes, then like people can bet and understand it much easier. And I think that's something similar could happen on Eigenlayer. No, that is that is pretty cool. So we talked about the economic side from the user perspective, right? Like restaking your risk, et cetera. Can we talk about it from the protocol level perspective or, or maybe the smart contract level perspective? Like if people are, I don't want to say rehypothecating because it's just kind of how I think about it. But if like ETH is restaked several times and somewhere along this chain it gets slashed like how do you think through like the real unknown risks of that cascading and unstate you know causing slashing from protecting other use cases and then those come underwater it seems like that's a, a hard problem to solve it is uh but also so here is a kind of like a general understanding of it so let's take the most extreme example of like restaking which is everybody restakes into everything okay and while intuition may suggest that this is a bad idea and uh you know if you use the rehypothecation type of thinking but actually we think this is the best outcome and the reason is if everybody restakes into everything imagine there are 1000 protocols each of which have like if going by themselves they can only sustain like $1 million of staking. You know, maybe just think of these as like DAP chains that want security. There are a thousand of these DAP chains. Each of them can sustain $1 million security if they go by themselves. Now, 
uh, by having like all these stakers restake on all these thousand use cases. And let's assume for simplicity that they all have the same code. We covered the code issues earlier, right? So they all have the same code, they're just different instances of the same type of thing. Now by having every Ethereum staker actually opt into these thousand chains, so to say, what could happen is basically you'd have $1 billion worth of economic security. And what happens for each application is if there was something wrong in that one application, you know, uh, the only way something can go wrong on that one application is actually that $1 billion worth of stake was, you know, misbehaved. And immediately what you also know is that at least half a billion dollar of stake is going to be slashed. Okay. Now that is actually simply superior to having 1,000 different chains, each having their own $1 million of security. This is the superpower of shared security. In fact, this is the reason why Ethereum became such a big system is because of the power of shared security. So you have thousands of dApps on Ethereum. Each of them pay only a small amount of fee, but together they're paying enough fee to sustain a $25 billion staking ecosystem. And it's simply much better to be one more dApp in this ecosystem, you know, rather than go be your own dApp with a $1 million staking. So that is the superpower of shared security. Now let's come to, I think, why like a lot of mental models when people use to think about eigenlayer from financial use cases fail is we are not making a promise that each of these use cases have $1 billion to be slashed. That is not correct. And that is not what we are saying. $1 billion is the total amount that will be slashed, but not even one application can have an error without at least $1 billion being shared. This is what we call the phenomenon of pool security. Now, each, so now there's a question of how does slashing priority work? What if like when the $1 billion of attack happened, they not only attacked like one chain, of course, you know, if they're doing a $1 billion attack and there are a thousand small chains, they would attack like 500 or whatever, a lot of these chains. And how does slashing priority work? And we don't have this in V1, but we'll have it in V2 is basically you can buy slashing priority, which is, you know, when you prepay, you know, there's $1 billion of port security and services that are building on top of Eigenlayer, they can come in and say, hey, you know, when my service goes down, I want the particular ability to redistribute the slash funds for at least 5 million. And I have to pay an insurance bond worth 5 million to actually make this happen. So there is a certain amount of attributable security and then there is a protection from attributable security and there's a certain amount of much larger amount of protection from pooled security. I want to just contrast this with if you're a dApp on Ethereum today, there's only shared security. There is no attributable security. So if you're Uniswap on Ethereum, and if an attack happens and Uniswap users lose a lot, lot of money, then there is no attributable value that is being paid back to the Uniswap users. And I think in Eigenlayer, we're also thinking forward on what better economic systems are to compensate for the harmed users based on these insurance bonds. So this also creates a strong, vibrant economy for paying the stakers in order to commit that amount of economic security to that. Damn, that's really cool. I'm. It sounds incredible. I am a little lost on, on a couple of parts. Can you maybe just double click on maybe a simpler example? Like, let's say we have, you know, Uniswap, Aave, and Compound, right? All leveraging Eigenlayer, right? And let's say Uniswap gets I, I don't think it would be Uniswap getting hacked, right? It would be 
the some stakers part- misbehaving, right? Like, Sorry. Let's yep. so let's split the 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 error modes into software errors, which we dealt with earlier, right? So there's let's let's assume that there is no software errors. The the issue that we're worrying about when we talk about leveraging is basically the fact that if the stakers miss so it it appears that the common stake is being used for many things. If the common stake is used for many things, the the stakers can collude and attack these many things together. So that's the thing that I'm trying to address here. Okay, understood. Got it. So if Uniswap, if people wanted to attack Uniswap for some reason, the stakers, like they see this massive trade going in, it's routed through Uniswap, they want to redirect the funds to themselves, they're obviously acting malicious, they get slashed, but the ripple effect on those stakers who are also staking on compounded Aave would be? It's definitely there. Like, so basically like what happens is in, so if you take this example of like this, let's say 10 popular DeFi apps and each of them are basically a chain restaked on Eigenlayer and the total amount of economic security is basically, let's say $10 billion of stakers have opted in and all of them have committed to running all of these services, right? So let's just take this example, 10 dApps, all of them running on like uh, Eigenlayer and Eigenlayer has $10 billion staked. Now, to attack even one service, to attack just Uniswap, you need to attack the entire pool of $10 billion. So you know that half of $10 billion or one third of $10 billion is going to get slashed, which is a much higher guarantee than if Uniswap were its own chain with $1 billion staking. So pooled security gives you immediately a higher guarantee. But of course, when that $10 billion of stake is attacked, commonly, all of the other services are going to take a hit. That is absolutely true. Got it. Okay. That helps me a lot in my understanding. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for the rehash there. That is, it is a cool way to think about it because it's just so different from what we have today. Yeah. Cool. Sure. Um, I, I know we're running a bit low on time, but I wanted to, to spend our final you know couple of minutes or, or maybe more just discussing the L2 space. Um, one interesting thing, which is a, a bit different from our conversation so far, but I want to make sure we cover it, is Espresso Systems noted that they released a new sequencer for L2 rollups to share. I mean, historically, like centralized sequencers for L2s has been something that's a point of contention, and some people say that it'll be really hard to ever decentralize them. I was hoping that you could maybe share a bit on Eigenlayer's interplay here, what this shared sequencer means, and... We could talk through that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, uh, earlier in the, in, in the chat, you asked this question about like how Eigenlayer uh, interacts with the layer two ecosystem. And I gave the first example as uh, like the data bandwidth problem. But a second example is the sequencing problem. So it's uh, really good that we come back to that as a, as, as, as a point of discussion. So... Right now, sequencers are doing really two different things. They are actually they're doing execution of things uh, that are running on top of like the the rollup, but they're also doing ordering of transactions. The interesting thing is the execution is the heavyweight task because you know you need to store the state and then you need to run a prover. You need to do a lot of complex things, but ordering of transactions is the contentious thing. But ordering of transactions is also the lightweight thing because you don't need to have a lot of state. You don't need to have a prover. You don't need to even know the virtual machine. You're just dealing with it as a bunch of bits that came to that rollup. And so the interesting thing is execution is the the non-contentious but heavyweight thing. 
ordering is the lightweight but highly contentious thing because you're relying on the single centralized sequencer to make sure you know my transactions get in for example if if you're trading options which expire in like 30 minutes and now like you know for 30 minutes if this node senses me i'm gone right so that's a very very single point dependence that we have with centralized sequencers today so ordering is the contentious thing execution is the non contentious thing but the heavyweight thing so if we have a common layer so how do we get like a a good ordering layer is if we have a lot of nodes participate in ordering and you know a natural way in which you would get it is through something like eigenlayer you know ethereum nodes a lot of nodes can participate and actually uh you know in ordering these transactions and if a lot of nodes participate in ordering these transactions then essentially we have um a we have a mechanism by which um uh by which you get censorship resistance from this large group and so the idea of a shared sequencer is this like you get a lot of nodes to participate you have them order transactions not for one rollup but many many rollups and then this leads to you know a higher amount of censorship resistance it leads to uh much better guarantees in terms of uh you know the temporal aspect of when can a transaction get included to these different rollups so this is a perfect example you know this is another thing that i want to touch upon here is when you think of decentralizing the sequencer is much because you know part of the appeal of rollups is they are relying on ethereum security and now when people say oh i have to do my own consensus and then settle on ethereum it sounds a little bit like oh you're trying to say you're getting security from ethereum but you're also getting security from yourself so it's a little bit unclear whereas if the rollups use something like eigenlayer for shard sequencing it's actually really a superpower because you can say yeah you know these are the nodes that are ordering the transactions like let's take the coinbase base rollup as an example you know if a a system like espresso running on something like eigenlayer were live today it'd be much easier for them to say yeah you know it's the ethereum guys that are ordering these transactions we are obliged to execute these transactions as a single node but we have no power in changing any ordering of transactions because it's already approved by that layer so that's the world view that we have that damn now i'm glad you point out the difference between the ordering of transactions and the execution side i guess one other question though is like why can't arbitrum why can't these l2s do decentralized sequencing without eigenlayer right you mentioned the concept of nodes do they have to basically build they out their entire their own, network yes they have to have their own group of nodes and you know the one of the most important things in uh decentralized sequencing is actually um the idea of uh censorship resistance and censorship resistance accrues if you have like a much more decentralized set and you know already exists on ethereum so i mean of course arbitrum can also build their own sequencing set but it's much better if there is a common sequencing set that is available for all the different new rollups like dapp specific rollups and other things that come up maybe arbitrum is big enough to build their own like decentralized sequencing set but you know a new layer 3 or a new like uh, chain would want to actually consume from this common uh, sequencing set there's also this other benefits of how mev is created and shared on a shared sequencing ecosystem if you have a shared sequencing ecosystem then uh there is a lot of powerful cross rollup transactions for example let's say one chain is uh one rollup is uniswap another rollup is sushi swap and there's a arbitrage between uniswap and sushi swap 
it's very difficult to express this atomically if they were separate sequencing sets. If there was a common sequencing set, you just go to that sequencing set and say that, hey, include this transaction here and that transaction there, and I'll pay you this much of MEV fee. And having like vibrant proposal builder markets for these things actually means that there's a lot of value in cross-domain MEV that accrues to this shared sequencing set. And the shared sequencing set in turn can share it back to the roller. And I think because, you know, different shard sequencing layers will compete with each other on attracting rollups. And one thing that they would do is to do a lot of MEV return, which not only is as much as the intra-domain MEV, which is whatever MEV accrues inside the Uniswap rollup, but also some aspect of the inter-domain MEV, which is like these kind of like atomic arbitrage between Uni and Sushi. And so the total value returned to the rollup will actually be higher if they participated in a shared sequencing ecosystem than if they participated in a separate sequencing ecosystem. Understood. And and when you say that they would, like Arbitrum would have to roll out their own sequencing set, are you basically saying that they have to roll their own nodes and kind of become an L1? Or is... Yeah, so <laughs> like that's the confusion that actually is problematic, which is they're only using their then rolled out nodes for ordering transactions. The validity of those transactions are checked on Ethereum. So at the end of the, and also the data availability is underwritten by Ethereum. So you are getting most of the aspects of trust from Ethereum, but the aspects of trust which correspond to short-term confirmation, uh, you know, the aspects of trust which correspond to who's deciding the ordering all come from the arbitra uh, Arbitrum system. So Damn. there's a kind of like a fine-grained... I feel fine like a lot of people division. are going to confuse that because I, I feel like yes. they'll roll out that and then everyone will think they're transitioning to their own L1s. And it, yes. yeah, that's yes. tough. That's, that's exactly what I meant by it's much simpler if decentralization all set, you know, all of the decentralization lives on one layer and you're just borrowing it for all your services. It's just a much simpler thing for people to wrap their head around than to say, oh, this thing's happening there, that is happening there. And so I think that is one of the kind of reasons something like Eigenlayer is very powerful because, uh, you know, another example of a service that can be offered if you add your own, like, you know, uh, like Arbitrum has its own chain, which does things fast, is fast confirmations, right? Like you can get like fast confirmation by putting up like art tokens. But with Eigenlayer, even that can be done on Eigenlayer because... There can be ETH staking and like ETH restakers run the Arbitrum system and say, yeah, you know, I've checked the execution and like I'm putting up this $8 billion worth of security and you have a you have a confirmation that like your uh, Arbitrum transactions are valid and you can do this in this really fast. It doesn't have to wait for Ethereum to confirm. So there are all these like uh, additional services that can be built on top of Eigenlayer, which augment the roll-up ecosystem. We've talked about DA, we've talked about sequencing, we've talked about fast finality. There's also fast bridging, like you want to move state from Arbitrum to Ethereum, it takes seven days. What if like enough Ethereum restakers run the Arbitrum thing and certify the state on Ethereum, putting down a collateral? So there's all these like really powerful things that can happen. Jeez. No, Shuram, I... I've had you for over 90 minutes. I need to let you get back to building all of this cool stuff. I honestly, like I, I learned in real time here and I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, I, I honestly learned so much about decentralized trust, restaking your DA layer. We talked about decentralized sequencers. We talked about economics. Like this was all 
Really, really cool, Shriram. I really appreciate all of your time today. I'm excited to share this. Thank you so much, Shami. Really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. All the uh, interesting dimensions of uh, questions that you brought us towards. Look forward to uh, continuing to chat off offline.